Hello and welcome to the Access of Space Defense and Security podcast. I'm Omkar Nikam, your host for this episode. In this podcast, we explore the latest developments and trends in the fields of space exploration, defense technology, and national security. Each episode features insightful interviews with experts and industry leaders who share their perspectives on a wide range of topics, including the latest advances in satellite technology, space exploration missions, military defense strategies, cybersecurity, and more. Whether you are a space enthusiast, a military professional, or someone interested in the latest innovation in technology and security, this podcast has something for you. Join us as we delve into the cutting-edge research breakthroughs that are shaping the future of space defense and security. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to episode 32 and 33, Spies and Strategist: Evolution of Indian Intelligence Agencies. I believe this is not a wonder for everyone that we are currently seeing a lot of uh, fluctuations in the diplomatic circle uh, where we see the two country names, specifically India and Canada. Uh, so on this occasion, uh, we are of course not going to take a deep dive into the topic of India and Canada, but we'll be taking a deep dive into the evolution of Indian intelligence agencies. Uh, so today to discuss uh, this topic in much more detail, what are the dynamics, uh, how have things evolved with a country like India, uh, starting from the scratch, uh, how the agencies were formed. Uh, to discuss these things in detail, we have today with us uh, the guest speaker, uh, Dr. Dhiraj Parmesha Chaya. Hi, Dhiraj. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Omkar. Happy to be here. Looking forward to this conversation. Likewise, thank you very much. Uh, I have been Really excited since I read your article. Uh, that is the new Mossad, specifically that one, the, the one that you published, I think, a few weeks ago. Uh, and I'm really glad you uh, could buy the time uh, for the podcast. Uh, so yeah, really looking forward for the questions ahead. So thank you very much. It's a pleasure. As yes. Mine. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, uh, like you know, before we take a deep dive into the topic itself, uh, I would like to know as a person because you know. Uh, you really have done some amazing work. You have published on a uh, book as well. Uh, so before we start with the topic, can you give us a brief introduction about yourself and uh, like about your academic background, then your journey, and in general, how you ended up doing what you're doing at the moment? Um, okay, uh, so to give you a background about my introduction to intelligence studies, um, I'll have to go back to 2013. That is the time when I was doing my master's. And I had a brief uh, two-month internship with a former RNDW officer. Uh, he was the deputy chief of RNDW. He had retired as the deputy chief of RNDW. And I had the opportunity to uh, work under his guidance for about two months. So during that period, what happened was that uh, he introduced me to a lot of training material. Uh, and right about that time, I also tried to explore what is happening in the academic side of things. And I realized that in a number of Western universities, there, there were studies being conducted on uh, intelligence studies. And these studies, uh, the outcome of these studies was significantly different to what was introduced to me uh, by the RNDW officer. And that's when I realized that there is an academic world of intelligence studies, which is significantly different to uh, 
the training material that, uh, that is used in the intelligence academies. So I realized that there is a difference between training and education. So that's when I realized that uh, I want to be part of this um, intelligence studies uh, community. I, I wanted to get into the academic study of intelligence. And my exploration uh, led me to the conclusion that there is nothing of, of that sort in India. So I had to look elsewhere. And uh, so when I was on uh, that journey, I realized that the United States and the UK are two countries which actually uh, have good programs, academic programs on intelligence studies. However, there was a significant difference. The difference being that the Americans were more concerned about uh, you know, training analysts who could be part of the American intelligence community in one form or the other. Whereas the British uh, academic studies on intelligence were more education oriented in the sense they were looking at it from multiple dimensions. So I felt that this was a place where I could uh, actually be. So then I made an application for uh, a PhD and I was fortunate to have got the opportunity to conduct my research under the supervision of two absolutely uh, wonderful scholars, uh, Professor Robert Dover and Professor Mark Fithian. So uh, under the supervision at the University of Leicester, I did my PhD on trying to understand um, why nations are you know, surprised and how intelligence failures actually lead to uh, strategic surprises. And during the course of that research, I realized that there is something known as intelligence culture, that is different countries do intelligence in, in, in a very different way. And that then you know, um, uh, determines the nation's chances of being surprised or not. And yeah, I, uh, the outcome of my research was uh, the publication of my book, uh, which is titled Spying for South Block, India's Intelligence, Culture and Strategic Surprises. And having completed that, I uh, got to work briefly with uh, the Karnataka State Police Forces. I um, helped author their uh, intelligence training manual, and I also um, have delivered lectures for them on in, in um, on various aspects of intelligence and uh, counter-radicalization, de-radicalization and so on. So, and from there, uh, I reached the University of Hull as um, uh, a lecturer in policing intelligence and security. So that's the long and short of my uh, journey through intelligence studies. Interesting. And I would say, firstly, wow. I mean, you did an internship under a former raw officer. Uh, so I believe that, I mean, even though if it's a brief stint or something, having an experience under such individuals is highly valuable. Uh, I'm saying this because uh, I come from a military school where our commandant, uh, his father, uh, uh, I think his position was colonel at that time, Harish Chandra Parab. So he was the first officer of the independent Indian Army uh, once we got the independence. Mm -hmm. And his son was our commandant. And of course, he was aged at that time uh, during my military school. Uh, but yeah, having... Uh, such an experience i can i can actually feel feel you the you know kind of journey you would have had and kind of the inspiration and the foundation you would have had through that internship uh, that has brought you uh, to this level uh, like you know uh, and i could relate to it as you mentioned uh, there are not many things or avenues related to this in india uh, it's exactly the same for the military satellites as well when it comes to space technology too Yes, I mean, uh, yeah. the, and and I mean, if sorry, if I may, uh, the larger point, I mean, the the relevance of having this kind of uh, journey, right, where you start off with interactions yes. with practitioners and then move into the academic space, is that you 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 understand both worlds better, and then you know how to bridge the gap between these two worlds. That is something that is generally missing in social sciences that I see, be it in India or anywhere, you know, especially in India, where 
academics and practitioners operate in silos. There is no conversation happening between the two of them. And that is why we see that when academics speak, they're speaking of speaking things that have almost zero relevance to practitioners and practitioners yes. do things uh, where they can't draw any insights from, from academics. So I think that for exactly. me, I, I had the advantage of, uh, um, you know, having this early interaction with both sides. And that's why most of what I've done uh, seems to have relevance on both on, with both the academy as well as the practitioners community. So yeah, that is the that is the point that I think we need to emphasize here. Yes, yes, I absolutely agree with you. I believe this tandem and uh, the parallel cooperation between the academicians and the practitioners should be there uh, because I think this is what helps a sustainable knowledge transfer to the future generation as well. Absolutely. Because if either of this are not in tandem with each other, uh, then, you know, we might have a superstar in some position today. But, you know, once that person gets down, we don't really have a knowledge to transfer to right. the other generation. Yes. So yes. I think this is this is the reason, like, I mean, we need both the things. And I hope in India, uh, I mean, there are experts like you as well now. So definitely, I hope things develop uh, on that level in India as well <laughs> in the future. So yeah, uh, going right ahead into the topic, uh, you know, we know the classic uh, terms, I mean, I would say an abbreviation, uh, IB and RAW. So I would like you to provide, you know, an overview of the historical background and the establishment of Indian Intelligence Agency. Okay. Um, to be honest, Omkar, this answer to this question itself would probably take an entire hour. So I'll keep it as yes. brief as possible. Definitely, uh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So purely uh, speaking from an organization point of view, right, our intelligence agencies, they trace their origins to the colonial period. And it it began with um, the colonial effort to fight a certain form of criminality called um, uh, the thuggy crime. So that's how the first um, establishment of an intelligence uh, agency happened during the colonial period. So uh, for a very long time, even after the in uh, Indian Intelligence Bureau was formed during the colonial period, its office in Shimla was known as the Thagi Daftar or the Thagi office, you know. So that, the, the Thagi crime basically laid the foundations for the establishment of uh, an organization of intelligence in India. And from then on, the colonial intelligence moved to focus on areas such as um, revolutionary terrorism. This is not my term. I would definitely not consider those uh, individuals as terrorists. But yeah, uh, from uh, from the colonial state's point of view, th there were there was the problem of revolutionary terrorism and communism during the early 1920s. And that is when you see uh, the organization getting the name called Intelligence Bureau. So fast forward to 1947, when we get independence, we inherit uh, the Intelligence Bureau, though much of the organizational strength moves to Pakistan, we do get some bit of the organization and uh, also the, the, the title of the organization that is the Intelligence Bureau. There used to be um, a small joint intelligence committee within the Chiefs of Staff's committee. So we inherited that as well. But for all practical purposes, once we gained independence, it was the Indian Intelligence Bureau that was this behemoth organization looking at all aspects of uh, national security, especially uh, you know, in, in the year 1950, uh, the decision was taken to make the IB responsible for both uh, external security and internal security and counterintelligence and all, so all, all aspects of national security. Then uh, in 1962, we have this war with China uh, in which India was surprised and it was a terrible humiliation. And after the war, uh, it was decided that we need to have certain covert action agencies. And so 
India raised three organizations, uh, namely Special Service Bureau, which uh, today's Sashastra Simabal, an organization of border uh, uh, guarding organization on the India, Nepal and India Bhutan borders, uh, traces its origins to. So you had the SSB and you had the Special Frontier Force, uh, which gained its prominence recently uh, during the India-China crisis at Galwan. And you had the Aviation Research Center. So you have these three organizations that were created in 1963 under something known as the Directorate General of Security. Um, but in 1968, on 21st September, when uh, India's dedicated foreign intelligence agency, that is the Research and Analysis Wing, was formed, uh, the DGS was subsumed by the RNDW. So these were the organizations that, that, that uh, functioned almost till the end of the millennium. But after the Kargil War, uh, there was the Kargil Review Committee, and then there was a group of ministers committee that came together to review uh, India's national security uh, establishment as it was. And they came to the conclusion that there needs to be a further review and revamp of India's intelligence uh, establishment. So as a consequence, what we see is that there was uh, another organization that was created, which is called the National Technical Research Organization. Uh, which was supposed to resemble the United States uh, National Security Agency. And uh, uh, there was also a defense intelligence agency created, which brought together the service intelligence of all the three uh, armed services, right? The Army, Navy, and the uh, Army, Navy, and the Air Force. So yes. as, as of today, I think this is, I mean, there are numerous other agencies. You have the police intelligence agencies, and you have the intelligence wings of the Central Armed Police Forces and so on. But broadly speaking, when you're talking about strategic intelligence agencies, this is what we have. We have the IB, we have the RNDW, we have the NTRO, and we have the DIA. So these are the four most prominent um, intelligence organizations that we have. And we also have uh, something known as the National Security Council Secretariat which does most of what the JIC used to do at one point in time. So it's a bit of a confusing system. Uh, I know I've brought up a lot of names and a lot of years, uh, but but that's how it is, you know, because historically we've not had this um, coherent thought process about how we want to think about India's national security, how what institutions we want to raise to address it. So we've, we've only been adding up agencies after one crisis after another. And so that's how we've got to where we are today. Interesting. Yeah, uh, just as you mentioned about this, and I think uh, the world very well knows about Rameshwar Nathkau, especially after uh, Nitin Gokhale, sir, uh, the founder yeah. of Strat News Global, he wrote a book on it, and it's an amazing book, actually. I think there's still few of the recordings are still yet to be out, so I think he might be updating it uh, after 2027. Mm -hmm. uh, but apart from that, uh, I just wanted to know it from a much more strategic perspective, because you said uh, it's from before the independence uh, itself, you know, our country or, you know, our experts were actually, you know, uh, in the sphere of intelligence. So uh, how much influence uh, did International Army and I would say specifically Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose, his view, his perspective and his tactics have possibly influenced the agencies? Uh, the influence of the Indian National Army on India's uh, security agencies has been minimal to nil actually uh, because we see that post independence the indian army was quite clear that they did not want any of uh, the ina's cadres to be reinstated into the indian army and quite logically so because once they deserted the uh, indian army and uh, the indian army being an institution that prides on discipline and so on so it's it was naturally understandable that they did not want to um, absorb these um, uh, ina cadres into into their fold 
but i but because india did not india's political leadership at that point in time did not have a clear understanding of how to make use of um, uh, intelligence for national security and so on they were not absorbed into any intelligence roles role as well but only some of them were made uh, ambassadors the best example being acn nambiar who was posted in europe at that point in time so some of them did serve in the diplomatic community but as far as uh, intelligence community is concerned there did not seem to be any influence of the ina cadres either from the point of view of strategies or operations or anything for that matter it was purely uh, an indian effort that had to be restart re, you know restarted uh, post independence with some bit of memory that served from the british colonial period interesting and uh, you know just taking a i would say like a follow up question uh, on the same lines so how do the roles and missions of agencies like uh, raw and ib differ from each other within the intelligence community and specifically can you also little bit uh, briefly extend on even ni and uh, ntro as well okay so when uh, when we got independence we inherited the Intel- indian intelligence bureau from uh, the colonial period but in 1950 what happens is that um, our pers- i mean until then our perception was that the himalayas uh, exist and then uh, tibet is sort of a buffer between india and china but in 1950 okay. that ceases to be the reality right with the, with the chinese um, pla's action actions in tibet so it was around that time uh, india organizes thanks to a letter written by uh, the then home minister uh, sardar patel india organizes a committee it was it is called the himmat singh ji committee or it is also called the north and northeastern borders committee i think that's the name it was uh, it had and um, according to the committee's findings the ib was made responsible for all sorts of intelligence external intelligence internal intelligence and even strategic military intelligence mm-hmm. uh, so that was in 1950 and that continued all the way up till 1968 the ib initially was found it very difficult to generate military intelligence and so on but we can discuss that later but nevertheless this arrangement went on till went on till 1968 once indira gandhi came to power in 1966 and she had very different ideas um, there are numerous reasons about why she created the rndw but once the rndw was created it was decided that it will function as the dedicated intelligence agency for uh, generating foreign intelligence in india so all this while what had happened was between 1950 and 1968 you had the ib which had a small group within which had a small desk within the ib which looked at external intelligence finally it was yeah. called uh, ngo which meant not to go out because nobody was actually posted <laughs> out here you know? so okay. that's how bad the situation was so um, so that's how it was but in 1968 when the rndw was created and you said that this is going to be a dedicated agency to cover uh, foreign intelligence then i mean you you couldn't have that kind of a funny scenario anymore this was an agency meant to gather uh, intelligence from across the borders and you see its its um, missions also spreading across the world as and when it was required uh, but we'll we can come to the uh, we can come to its expanse much later uh, but then what happens is in at the start of the 1990s uh, there is a, there is a problem again there is the problem of terrorism state sponsored terrorism picking up especially since the 1993 bombay blasts and so on 
and then finally uh, when you come to the kargil war in 1999 again that was another instance when uh, which which gave the impetus for to the political leadership to think about uh, india's national security establishment as it was so uh, so there they decided that yes now the rndw will continue doing its business of foreign intelligence but the ib also because of the problem of terrorism will have a limited mandate in liaising with foreign security agencies that are dealing with counter terrorism but it will do this with co in coordination with the rndw all right so okay. now what we see from 2001 is that both ib and rndw have uh, i mean the rndw definitely has a foreign uh, in intelligence dimension but the ib too is sort of sharing some responsibility along with uh, the rndw coming to the ntro the ntro is supposed like i said it is supposed to act um uh, something similar to the american uh, national security agency so it is supposed to be india's premier technical intelligence agency so it it got most of its uh, infrastructure from the rndw because it's as once the uh, ntro was formed much of the assets from the rndw were moved to the ntro but there is still no clear clarity if ntro is the only organization functioning as uh, india's technical intelligence agency or or the rndw and the ib and other organizations are also having a significant role because even within the rndw there is uh, a technical division the ib has also improved its uh, technical intelligence uh, capabilities the indian armed forces have also uh, a significant sig uh, signals intelligence component so despite the fact that ntro is the nodal agency for all sorts of technical and signals intelligence the service intelligence and other intelligence agencies are also uh, having a role in it so the point that i'm trying to make here is that in india you don't have these watertight systems there is a certain degree of overlap between these agencies and that is naturally yes. so because of the threat environment in which india resides because there is nothing in india that you can clearly call that this is a domestic threat or this is a foreign threat there seems to be a significant overlap between much of them and uh, that is why when you talk to some of these uh, some of the ib officers right they don't refer to uh, internal threats as just merely internal threats the term that they use is externally fostered internal threats which means that there is a foreign dimension as well Yeah. So yeah so this is how uh, we we see the uh, we see the division of labor between between these agencies interesting yeah and just to kind of extend for our audience so the full form of raw is research analysis wing and ntro is national technical research organization uh, i'm telling this because uh, we have a quite a lot of audience from the space industry and uh, they are not so much familiar with the security circle uh, of course through the podcast i'm making them familiar uh, but i just wanted to you know put this note for our audience uh, so yeah proceeding ahead a little bit with the agency conversation uh, so can you discuss the major successes and setbacks of raw ib or even you know in the recent time uh, ntro uh, or like from your experience like what have you uh, like specifically thought okay this might be uh a prime success of the agency or this might be you know a, a possibly a cavity where the agencies can improve from your perspective all right umka so this is this is a very important question and i say so because the answer to this question will depend on who you ask this question right because in intelligence yes. <laughs> there are the intelligence agencies so yeah there are the intelligence agencies yeah. there there are the uh, clients or customers the consumers who consume uh, the intelligence that is given by the intelligence agencies and uh, you also have the media and public opinion right yes. so whenever there is some sense of uh, disaster that happens the knee jerk reaction for the media is to call it an intelligence failure 
I mean, they yes. have no stakes, they have no skin in the game, so it's it's very easy to uh, make such uh, you know sensational yeah. claims and move on. Uh, and as far as the intelligence agencies are co- concerned across the world, they unfortunately uh, the way they the way they operate is that they have to, especially in countries where there is not significant accountability and so on, they have to just swallow the criticisms and 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 not speak back, right? And as far as the consumers uh, are concerned, if if at all it's a successful operation, it is a successful operation. But if it fails, then intelligence can easily be made a, a scapegoat, right? And I t- I tell this because as an academic, right? We uh, I want you all to understand that whenever we talk we talk of intelligence failure, right? Failures, right? There is a clear yes. distinction between what is intelligence failure and what is information or knowledge gaps, right? Yes. now because this basic distinction is not you know understandable for many of our consumers that's where these cries of intelligence failure comes and in this i i hold the indian armed forces and in, and the indian security personnel including the police forces highly responsible for making for not managing to understand this distinction right so let me give you an example if you look at the yes. history of the rndw and the ib right you mm-hmm. will not see that there are any there are many significant failures as such the reason is because the two failures that we can talk of yes the 1962 war why because in 1962 uh, the indian intelligence bureau did not understand the strategic environment in which in which it was operating in the sense that it did realize that china was an enemy but it could not make sense it could not uh, conduct the military analysis of uh, whatever ch- china related information that it had gathered and that was because organizationally the the uh, the ib was extremely weak on military intelligence analysis so that was one instance where there was an intelligence failure and the second instance of uh, of a failure in foreign policy was the rndw's inability to understand the uh, uh, the ltte right nice. i recall uh, having a conversation with with um, the uh, the rndw officer who was the handler of um, uh, mr prabhakaran and he clearly told me that we just couldn't get we, we just couldn't understand this man that is in reference to prabhakaran so yes. the strategic understanding of um, uh, the entire tamil movement that was happening in sri lanka was was sort of flawed so these two can be regarded as intelligence failures because you're operating on fundamentally wrong assumptions fundamentally wrong assessments which then yes. make your policies completely wrong but otherwise yes. what happens is uh where where the army or where the police forces tend to raise complaints about the central intelligence agencies is in terms of giving tactical intelligence now somewhere indian intelligence agencies are not geared for um uh, provision of such kind of tactical intelligence for instance you talk to any police officer and uh, and uh, with regard to say the protection of a vip or something they will casually say that every time we have received an ib's uh, assessment it is open to all sorts of possibilities nothing specific about what how the threat is going to manifest or anything of that sort now that is something that is that's tactical intelligence right that is something that these security yes. forces themselves will have to go hunt for that kind of information it is not something that the rndw or the ib can provide yes of course if they come across that information they can always pass it on to you but it is beyond their mandate and beyond the resources that they have to produce that kind of information so those yes. kind of information gaps will always exist and they according to me cannot be considered as intelligence failures right so the ib's other intelligence failures if you have to talk about in in 1993 when the uh, bomb blast have serial bomb blast happened in um, um, bombay right yes they knew that there was a significant shift happening in pakistan strategy towards uh, the pakistani isi strategies towards india but what they could not estimate is to what extent 
they could collaborate with with the mumbai mafia with the bombay mafia that is something that they missed similarly in in 2011-12 when when the when stone pelting started in kashmir that was yes. something that they missed they did not they could not understand the shift that was happening so those kind of uh, failures are there but they are few and far between and that is because historically i mean as far as internal security is concerned one of the ib's first and major failure was the indian freedom struggle itself the fact that india yes. became independent from uh, britain right that itself was their failure in a sense so they understood what was happening and they understood how to tackle the threat of subversion and and so on so that is where you see them do really well and as far as the rndw is concerned they they have understood the neighborhood much better than any other institution in india because they yes. this is this is one organization that works on true empirics and i can i, I have i have seen this with numerous examples where you have the mea or you have uh, the the indian army operate on certain doctrines operate on certain assumptions but this is one agency which tells look this is what i see this is what i know right so to even yes. take for example the 1990 and kargil war right the agency was one of the first ones to say that just because you've tested a nuclear tested nuclear weapons and both countries have uh, gone nuclear doesn't mean that there's not going to be conflict between the two of them right they were very clear to the fact that they were aware of the fact that pa- there is a significant section in pakistan which wanted to exploit this nuclear parity that has come up uh, come across right yes. so which is where you'll see that sometime in i think this was in september 1998 where um, they clearly said that a limited offensive is clearly possible but when the consumers uh-huh. came really heavy on them they had to the, they had to backtrack it and then go back to their to things like economic analysis and so on to say that pakistan does not have the capacity to now conduct war and so on so that is so i think that the, there is a larger dialogue missing between uh, the intelligence agencies and the consumers and as a consequence the consumers in india are uh, they lack this kind of literacy intelligence literacy or, uh, that's a term that i would like to use so once they get that i think there'll be a better coordination which i think right now it is uh, it has come up to a certain degree but still there is there is a lot uh, there's there's a lot distance to cover in this on this front interesting like it's really great that you provided an extended outlook on you know the uh, neighboring foreign policies as well of india so uh, a little bit you know to go a step ahead in that uh, how have changes in global geopolitics uh, specifically influenced the evolution of raw and ib strategies and its priorities for the foreign policy as well well uh, it is not exactly global geopolitics alone because for indian intelligence agencies uh, for their priorities it has always been a combination of the global geopolitics as well as india's responses to it you know because and it's not necessary that india's uh, security situation is always influenced by global geopolitics um, yes that is not the case because if you go back to the nehruvian period we saw ourselves as part of this uh, you know as somebody who can build peace between competing parties and that is a kind of that is a kind of uh, you know thinking that was there during the nehruvian period but after that we yes. realized that somehow we are we are limited to our geography that is the south asian geography and the and the south asian region and the indian ocean region will remain india's uh, area of influence so so our entire uh, policies at that point in time say from the mid 60s or you know from the 1970s onwards was to make sure that there is no extra regional influence within the south asian region and to that extent mm-hmm. the rnaw and the ib uh, was operating but today i think 
India is not India of the 1970s or 80s. Uh, India's power position is, is is completely different. India's aspirations are completely different. And to that extent, the um, the RNDWs and the IB strategies also have to undergo a significant change because right now we will uh, I, I I would believe that the agencies are not only looking for uh, strategic threats but they are also in lookout for strategic opportunities that uh, the country can uh, exploit positively to improve its uh, stature. So to that extent, I I do believe that global geopolitics has influenced uh, the agency strategies and priorities. And to, from today's point of view. Um, as far as the IB goes, I'm quite clear that India has a realization that at, that so long as its its house is in, is not in order, its ability to project power internationally will be limited, and so uh, there there seems to be a clear mandate for the IB that all domestic security threats need to be handled uh, carefully and you know put an end to, and that is why we see uh, that the problem of uh, jihadist terrorism is almost is almost you know it's almost come to a nil we haven't seen many terrorist attacks happen in india other than yes. in the kashmir theater and and we also see that there is a strong will to also settle most of the northeastern disputes though manipur now is on fire which is something that um, uh, the, that's that's pretty sad but yeah there were efforts being made by the government at least to uh, to settle the naga issue and so on so i think that the ib strategies to that extent are clearly uh, clearly uh, sorted out and the and as far as the rndw goes I think there is uh, far more rigor now and uh, vigor now, and um, there is this expectation on the agency to to make sure that the world opinion and and uh, the public opinion across the world is somehow positively shaped in 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 favor of India, which is something that it has been doing even in the past since at least the days of the 1971 war and so on. So yes, there is a certain sense of continuity, but it's just that the scale has significantly gone up. Yes. And a uh, little bit on the same lens, I would say, uh, from the perspective of the agencies, uh, whichever agency, I mean, like uh, you can tell it from your perspective. Uh, so can you shed a little bit light on foreign policy and it's uh, how it is used to influence the regime uh, by these agencies for the regime change possibly, or maybe, you know, possibly to create a, a good diplomatic channels to resolve the conflict without engaging into the armed conflict? Right. So um, as far as, I mean, when you look at covert action, right, there are two uh, ways of pulling it off. It's either yes. we generally focus on covert regime change, but there's also covert regime protection, right? It it it, end, it goes both ways. Sometimes you might want to change the regime that is in power because you believe that uh, they are not favorable to you. But at the same time, you might want to pro protect a certain regime considering the fact that they are the more they are the most ideal ones from your foreign points foreign policy point of view so i think india has had a history of both of them and um though not using the intelligence agencies per se back in 1950s itself nehru had used his diplomatic uh, might to 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 uh, in 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 nepal for instance uh, so uh, where where there was a pro democracy movement coming up and india had supported it so I I can I can go back to the 1950s to say that India has always wanted to have some kind of uh, regional influence, but come to the 1970s, this uh, uh, 1960s and 70s, especially after the 62 war, this aspiration actually expands. So you see India being involved in almost all of the countries in its neighborhood in order to establish a regime that is favorable to them. So uh, we see that first with, um, for I can give you the example of uh, uh, the 1971 war itself, right? Since the, since the 1962 India-China war, um, India had always been in, Indian intelligence agencies had been in contact with um, 
elements in east pakistan the bengal elements in east pakistan and this was um, this was a carefully crafted strategy because if you recall india before 1971 right you had the northeastern region being sandwiched between china in the north and pakistan in the south which is then called east pakistan and you had this narrow uh, corridor that's the siliguri corridor which could be cut off at any point in time and your northeast uh, states would be you know at the mercy of uh, your enemy states so from that point of view uh india was clear that it had to have some bit of influence in east pakistan so you had um, a, a man named mr sankaran nayar today everybody knows uh, rn kao as you said because of the book that's been written by mr nitin gokhale but rn kao's deputy mr sankaran nayar was also an important personality as far as india's intelligence history goes so he had developed significant contacts with several um, influential people within the east pakistan polity and uh, military and society and so on so those connections did continue so it was it was a very subtle kind of uh, uh, you know operations to make sure that there is some sort of influence gained but once the domestic political situation changed in pakistan uh, once the elections of 1969 were sort of uh, uh, you know it were declared null and void because the east pakistanis ended up with a majority so it was at that point in time which which also led to a refugee crisis and so on it's a long story i'm just trying to cut it short here so it was at that point in time that india realized that we have to do something and but this case is important the whatever i tell you from here on right that actually tells you the story of how covert operations are actually planned so from january of 1971 till december of 1971 there was a lot of covert action planning and execution that india had conducted before the war the war happened in uh, in december from january to march india was not really clear about whether they wanted an independent bangladesh whether they should sponsor the insurgency that was happening in east pakistan or not and that is because um, there were several individuals and institutions in new delhi who were giving very different points of views it was only the indian intelligence agency under the leadership of rn kao which was favoring covert operations but all other institutions were not in favor of it so we we took a hands off approach until march it was it was from march to august Uh, between march and august that india decided that uh, look the world is not going to help us um, there is a serious pro refugee crisis happening and also considering the na national security threat that we are facing um, you know with uh, the 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 possibility of um, a two front war and so on it was decided that okay let's just give some bit of help and assistance to the bengali fighters right so at that point in time you see the rndw get into action on on two fronts one is to use the ssb the organization that i was talking about to provide uh, along with the bsf to provide covert paramilitary assistance to the uh, bengali rebels that is to arm them to provide them training and so on but most importantly now this is something that we need to remember because the, it also has relevance to some of the accusations that are being made against the agency today as well is that they conducted operations across the world to shed light on the atrocities that were happening against the bengalis so the rnw had something mm -hmm. uh, known as the psychological warfare division and they joined hands with the bengalis they joined hands with musicians uh, across the world uh, with with uh, and and you know they they uh, they spread propaganda propaganda though the word carries a negative connotation today but it was uh, it was white propaganda if i can use the term so they they used yes. all these techniques to make sure that the world became uh, became aware of the atrocities that were committed by the west pakistanis against the bengalis yes. in east pakistan and yes. because the hope was that even though the governments don't sort of support india at least the international public opinion is in favor of india so that was that is what india wanted 
right? So the, these two operations were parallelly happening till August. It is only from August on when India realized that there's virtually no other option and uh, the uh, the problem is is escalated to such a level that we need to create at least some zone within East Pakistan which we can declare as independent Bangladesh or and and have a have a government in exile and so on. It is only then that the Indian Army also gets into the picture and so on. And RNAW becomes this nodal agency to manage the entire operations, right? So yes. th that is how complex and convoluted the decision to conduct a covert, a covert action uh, happens. So yes, India has always wanted to have influence in influence in its neighborhood, um, protect governments which are in in its favor, or make regime changes uh, when when it is found that the governments have not been in favor. But it is not something, uh, it, it, it is not done through a sense of hooliganism or something that we are strong and we pump in weapons and things just change. I mean, that's that's one of the reasons why we failed in Sri Lanka, right? Because there was no clarity yes. like the way we saw in uh, East Pakistan. In East Pakistan, we had a clear uh, strategy. We said that this is what, this is how we want the operations to take shape. Uh, and, at, and at a certain point when we found it ideal, that's when we decided to strike and say, this is, now we are going to create an independent state of uh, Bangladesh. But in Sri Lanka, yes. we never wanted an independent Tamil state. Right, that was never there on uh, on our agenda. So then you had different personalities coming up at different points in time. Assessments went wrong and so on, uh, which taught us that you know carrying out a court action like the kind that we pulled off in 1971 is not always possible. Different situations have come up with their own uh, complexities and challenges, which we we'll, which we will have to deal with uh, as things evolve. So that was a lesson we learned then. But overall speaking, it has been India's uh, policy that we cannot afford to have governments in the neighborhood that are not in favor of us. Today, it has become far yes. more challenging because uh, it was far easier to keep extra regional powers like the, the Soviet Union or the United States out of uh, the neighborhood. But it has become increasingly difficult to keep China out of the neighborhood. So yes. we are seeing a lot more, uh, you know, court activities happening in our neighborhood, but now in tough competition with the Chinese. The next part of this episode will be continued in episode 33. So I kindly request you to click on the episode 33's link below in the description of this episode. Thank you and enjoy the conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you find our podcast insightful, then please like, share and subscribe. See you in the next episode. Thank you.